0: It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
1: Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: All right, guys, you are Locked On Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman, and today... We are breaking down the edge rushers heading into 2018 training camp where we're going to be talking about position battles and the major storylines with this position. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the locked on podcast network. Your team every day. All right, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman, founder of Falcons.com, one of the longest running Falcon websites on the internet, on Twitter at Falcons. And of course, the host of this illustrious. Locked On Falcons Podcast. Today we are continuing our series of positional previews heading into training camp with the Edge Group. This is going to be a longer episode. You know, I've mentioned on previous episodes that we try to keep these episodes, all these episodes from moving forward under 30 minutes. That will not be the case today because I have quite a bit to say about Tack McKinley and Vic Beasley today. But I will save that to the end of the show. I will try to hold off from going on too many rants. I've been quite a bit about Vic Beasley over the last, you know, eight, nine months or whatever on this podcast, and usually it involves 20 minutes of me ranting about, you know, expectations and Vic Beasley needs to be a linebacker and all that type of stuff. I will touch upon all those things today. I will touch upon Tack McKinley's potential to ascend in year two as one of the the great pass rushers, Uh, but we'll start off talking about the rest of the edge group, the backups, the guys that are going to be competing, because... There isn't quite as much to say about that. Um, Before we get into that, I do want to touch upon the notion that I mentioned on the D-line breakdown from last week that I do think one of the questions I have about this Falcons defense and its potential to ascend this season is whether or not this pass rush is going to take it to that next level. I've mentioned before or hinted at before, and, and you saw this in a Ringer article uh, this past over the last couple of days, um, which was the Falcons have this triumvirate of young promising pass rushers, which they, they certainly do. They certainly have the talent, but it's going to put this season is really going to put a lot of on those guys plate because last year you had guys like Poe. You had guys like Claiborne who were arguably some of the biggest contributors to the pass rush Um at least in terms of raw numbers last year, you can argue that Claiborne was the best edge rusher on the team last year. You can argue that Poe, at least from a pressure standpoint, was the best interior pass rusher on the team last year. Um, And so those were two big losses. And now, you know, with the Falcons' moves this offseason, they didn't really go out there and and get a home run in the draft like many thought with Taven Bryan at D tackle, get the edge rusher that many people for various reasons were pining for, uh, in this draft and whatnot. And so it puts a lot of pressure on these three young guys in Grady, Jarrett intact, McKinley and Vic Beasley to basically carry the mantle, whatever contributions, some of these other additional complimentary players give is certainly going to be great, but I don't think anybody's really counting on Derek Shelby or Brooks Reed or Terrell McClain or Deidre Sonat to really have these monster seasons this year. So it's going to put a lot of pressure on these three guys and and as I said in that D-line preview, um I'm rambling a little bit, but uh I, you know, I do have a little bit more optimism for Grady Jarrett because I feel like he's like 90% there and it's just getting that last 10%. And I don't know if Vic Beasley and Tack McKinley are quite 90% there to be those types of players that we're talking about that can be these, you know, guys that can be the anchor of of a prolific pass rush in the league. And we'll touch upon those Why the reasons why I think those things on today's episode. But again, as I said, uh, let's talk about the rest of this group because you know I have thoughts, particularly on Brooks Reed. He's going to be the primary backup. He's a solid player. Um, He'll continue probably get the bulk of his reps in the in the base defense, but will get substituted in the nickel as that guy off the edge uh, when Tack or Vic need a breather or whatnot. And I think you know Brooks Reed since you know basically since. Uh, Adrian Claiborne got injured midway through that 2016 season. Has been outstanding in that specific role, and so I am not as concerned about the Falcons' depth at the edge position. Uh, why I was a little, little baffled by people pushing for the Falcons to use a first or second round pick on a on an edge rusher this uh, past off season uh, for that reason. Um, When you look at the production at Brooks Reed, you look at Pro Football Focus's pass rush productivity metric, which certainly isn't the end-all, be-all of uh, pass rushing, but is certainly a very useful tool to measure guys. Brooks Reed, among 4-3 defensive ends this past season in 2017, ranked 23rd in terms of his pass rushing productivity, just three spots behind Tack McKinley. In fact, if you look at the 4-3 defensive ends, um... Brooks Reed was the most productive backup 4-3 defensive end in the league last year, besides Tack and Frank Clark, who arguably was a starter last year due to the injury of Cliff Averill pretty early in the season. So, again, you can make the argument that Brooks Reed is the best backup 4-3 defensive end, at least as a pass rusher goes, based off of that metric, in the entire league. He had a better PRP, as as uh, Pro Football Focus refers to it, than Dante Fowler, Olivier Vernon, Julius Peppers, Jerry Hughes, Jason Pierre-Paul, etc., last year. So, again, a lot of the criticism that Brooks Reed has gotten, a lot of the skepticism that Brooks Reed has gotten over the last couple of years, I think it's very misplaced and misguided. So, yes, uh, someone asked me back in October of last year like am I the president of the Brooks Reed fan club? I guess I am. I you know, someone's got to be. I think he's a really solid player. He's not a superstar, but he's as good a backup player. You can argue he's probably the best, one of the three or four best backup players on this entire roster. So I don't really get what people complain about when it comes to Brooks Reed. He's an excellent role play. He's as good a role player as, it, as you can get in my opinion uh, at this level. Um, let's talk about the rest of these um, edge rushers that are going to be competing for that spot behind Brooks Reed. And as I, Uh, Talked about in the D-line preview, I'm not necessarily including Derek Shelby, who's technically a defensive end, but he was included in the defensive line group because he's probably in certain nickel situations will get some work inside and playing that five technique, that strong side defensive end spot is less of a quote-unquote true edge rusher than more of a a run-defending, bulkier player. Um, So we're going to be talking about guys like JT Jones, McKinney Cheridor, and Anthony Winbush today. Um and so those are going to be guys competing for the possibility of what is a fourth edge, but really probably a fifth defensive end role this year. um We saw the Falcons carry five on their roster last year with Vic, Shelby, Reed, Tack, and Claiborne. I don't necessarily. I think that's one of the assumptions that people think the Falcons need or want one of these three young guys to step up and will potentially earn a roster spot for that reason. But I do think a lot of that, at least those roster decisions, were based. Primarily on the fact that Tack was the guy and they were drafting Tack and developing him for the long term. Um, and carrying five made sense because Tack was the fifth guy in that rotation. I don't necessarily know if that's going to be the case, but one of the things that we're gonna to have to watch this summer is whether or not any of these guys play at a high enough level to potentially earn that spot and be like, oh no, this guy is definitely worth keeping. Um, JT Jones is probably the guy to obviously keep an eye on. He had a good summer last year, spent the year on the practice squad. There's been talk that he might get some work at linebacker. Uh, We've talked in previous episodes that Anthony Winbush, you know, might get work at linebacker. I have previously opined that I feel like Winbush's best long-term fit for the defense is as a linebacker, but he'll probably, you know, in a similar way of Vic Beasley, he's a linebacker, but he's really a a pass rusher. So it's more sort of in that mold with Winbush. Uh Cherador is an interesting player because I do think he's sort of overlooked um by this group. I think a lot of you know you have people in the JT Jones bandwagon, you have some people in the Anthony Winbush hive. I've I've gotten some tweets from people that are on that hive. But I do think Cherador is a sort of a quietly a sleeper guy just because he doesn't have the same question marks. that I think these other two guys that you do have questions about whether Jones can hold up against a run. You do have questions about whether Winbush can do so as well. Cheridor has a size from a height, weight, arm length standpoint. There's not a lot of difference in terms of the frame of McKindy Cheridor, the undrafted rookie out of Georgia State, than Marcus Davenport, the first-round pick for the New Orleans Saints. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting that they're the same player. Davenport is much more freakishly athletic than than a guy like Cheridor. But I do think from a long-term developmental standpoint, Cheridor at least checks some of those boxes that the team may or may not want in another edge rusher particularly opposite guys like Beasley and um Tack McKinley who aren't, you know, the world's biggest guys and has a little bit more size that he could be maybe a little bit more long-term developmental uh developmentally stout against the run and also is a good pass rusher, you know, his biggest knock in college was durability he seemed to get hurt every year. But I, it'll be interesting to see if any of these guys make the roster. I think particularly with guys like Jones and Winbush, if they do make the team, I do think they'll have to produce on special teams. I don't necessarily know if that's going to be a role for Cheridor, although if he does show that he can play on special teams, that's going to be valuable. That help guys like Cliff Matthews and, and Malachi Goodman stick on the roster for a couple of years longer than necessarily maybe their defensive abilities uh, merited uh, just because they could also, you know, be plugged in on special teams and and be on kickoff and, and punt coverage units. Uh, so if Cheridor can do that as well, I think it will enhance his hits. But I think with all three of these guys, I'm eager to see what they can do. I'm eager to see what sort of pass rush potential all three of these guys have. And if one of these guys is a, you know, cat cappy, uh, aka Nordley cappy type gym that we can get excited about the summer. You know, anytime you have a, a second or third string pass rusher, it gets people excited similar to we see on, every summer. Not is, uh, With wide receivers, we don't see that every summer with the pass rushers, but, you know, it seems like every two or three summers we get one of these, you know, pass rushers, whether it's JT Jones or Chris Odom or, or Cap Cappy, that gets people buzzing, and I'm curious to see if any one of these three guys is going to be that. So that's what I have to say about the depth. As far as that goes, we'll, we'll talk in a bit about Tack McKinley. Before we move on, uh, I do want to ask you guys to rise up. And if you're going to rise up, then you might as well check out BlueChew.com because it brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. So you know that it works. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as any pill. So you can be ready whenever the opportunity rises up. Blue Chew is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a sweet package so you don't have to worry about that doctor's office, you don't have to go to a pharmacy and you don't have to have those any more awkward moments uh, getting your pills. Uh, they're made in the USA and Blue Chew ships direct. Uh, it's cheaper than any pharmacy. Right now you can get a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free uh, when you use the special promo code Locked on, just pay five dollars shipping. Again, that's Blue E com. Promo code locked on to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, and faster choice.
1: Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
0: Okay, let's talk about TAC. And and we're going to talk about TAC. And for both TAC and and Vic, we're going to talk, A little bit about their breakdown of their production last year, because I I do find this stuff fascinating. Um, We'll talk a little bit about their expectations going into the season and and other topics. But let's talk about uh, the breakdown of Tacks, Sacks, and his production last year. Um, He had eight sacks, if you include the playoffs. He also had four quarterback hits over the course of the season. Let's call these combined. We'll call them quarterback encounters uh, is a a good term. Or maybe it's not a good term, but it's a term I'll use at least for today. uh, For a total of twelve quarterback encounters over the course of eighteen games, which is very good for a rookie. Um, So there's no doubt about Tack had a very solid rookie year. Now I think because of that, there are these sort of expectations that oh, if Tack can get eight sacks in eighteen games, or um, then if he improves his production by you know thirty or forty percent or fifty percent. Then he's well on his way to having a double-digit sack season uh, in 2018, and I think on paper there's reasons why you would think that and why you would agree with that. But I do think it sort of gets into the territory a little bit when we say things like, "Oh, this is when sacks are overrated." And I know there's people out there over o- rolling their eyes uh, because you know Mike Smith infamously said something uh, similar to that years ago, and, and it was sort of a testament to the sort of cluelessness of Mike Smith. And we've talked about this on previous episodes many years ago where you can make an argument that the reason why Mike's one of the main reasons why Mike Smith is currently not the Falcons coach is because of his poor his negligence when it came to the pass rush so you know that Sacks is overrated freight statement puts people back into that frame of mind but in, a, in reality Sacks are a little bit overrated at least when we Look at the number and then try to apply meaning and value to it. Like when you see a guy that has two sacks, you, 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 you evaluate him a certain way. You infer a certain thing about his ability uh, when you see that. Or if a guy has six sacks or eight sacks or 10 sacks or 15 sacks, that gives you a certain inference or value to that guy that isn't always true. Generally, it is probably true. Two out of three times, four out of five times, nine out of ten times, it may wind up being true, but it's not always true. And I think that's, you know, that's been an issue that has sort of plagued Vic Beasley the last couple of years, uh, which we'll touch upon later in the episode. But I think you have to put these sack numbers in particular in context, and that's what we're going to try to do here with Tack McKinley. I think otherwise, you're just simply looking at numbers and making assumptions and inferences, And I think you really need to put these sacks in context and, you know, I'll put them in context for you to a certain extent and you can draw your own conclusions. I will, of course, share my conclusions based off that. And, of course, you can always assume that those conclusions are the correct ones. But, you know, you are free to interpret the data how you feel like. But without much further ado, you got to look at how Tack goes about and gets these uh, sacks and, and hits and against whom he's getting those guys. Um, because, again, it tells you so much about what the player is. Um, You know, His 12 encounters last year uh, break down as the following. Six of them he got primarily using speed. Three of them came primarily with him using some sort of power move, and these are sort of broad terms uh, we're using here. Um, And two of them were unblocked on a stunt. One of them was unblocked when he was spying Russell Wilson in that Seahawks game. Um, Now let's talk about the six that he got with speed, which was – presumably his go to move last year, who he got those against. He got a hit versus Green Bay and going up against Kyle Murphy, the backup right tackle. He got a sack against Detroit against Greg Robinson. He got a sack against the Jets going up against Brent qualley He got a sack against uh Tampa Bay in that first Bucks game against demar Dotson. He got a sack against riley Reef against Minnesota. And he got a sack in that uh second Tampa Bay Bucks game against Caleb Binnenock. So you look at that list of guys that he's beaten with his speed there are three backup offensive tackles in that group, plus Greg Robinson, who is currently a backup in, in Cleveland, competing for a backup role. And then you have two quality starters as it breaks down. But what's interesting is when you look at particularly that Dotson sack, he tore a ligament on a previous play, and that happened to be the last play in that game and the last play in that season. He tore a ligament in his knee, and so one of the reasons why he couldn't stay in front of attack Speed on that particular play because he was playing with one knee. And so not to say that that sack doesn't count, but it does indicate that necessarily he wasn't beating DeMar Dotson, obviously at, in his best sh- shape or form. Riley Reef, the other quality starter that he beat is a guy, you know, at least in Falcon circles is infamous for getting whooped by OCU human. in that London game several years ago. Um, so that's sort of a Testament to not necessarily him being an elite left tackle uh, in that regard. So, I say that not to necessarily diminish it and say, oh, those sacks don't count or anything like that. They, of course, they they count. Beating bad right offensive tackles is a is a rite of passage in the NFL. That's where the vast majority of sack production comes from is beating the lesser offensive tackles. The Trent Williamses and the Joe Thomases and the Jason Peters of the world aren't giving up sacks. So how are teams getting these? You know, on average, two and a half sacks a game? It's coming by beating bad offensive tackles. You know, Trent Williams has given up, I think, zero sacks in his last 16 games. Uh, you know, like, so it's not to say that, oh, if you beat a bad offensive tackle, it means the sack doesn't count or it means that, you know, the sack isn't good enough, but it does become predictive of potential, it does potentially come predictive of future results. Um, and what it's telling you, particularly with tax speed, is that it is most effective against the below average off and bad offense tackles that he's going to face. And so, you know, again, that can be predictive You know, when he faces Matt Khalil or Sean Coleman or Donovan Smith or Nate Solder this year, then you can be like, oh, Tack can use his speed against those guys. And certain some of those guys are very susceptible to speed rushers. Uh, Solder being a a very prominent example of that. Um, But, you know, I'm not sure if that speed is going to be as effective against Jason Peters or Teron Armstead or Tyron Smith or Trent Williams. And so, you know, let's look at you know before we, we get deeper into that, let's talk about tax power encounters, the three uh power encounters that he had. Uh one came against Jermaine Effetti for a sack, he beat Rob Havenstein in the playoffs in the Rams game, and he beat Big V uh, Vitai in uh the Eagles game in the playoffs. Now that's also not a who's who of elite offensive tackles either. I would probably take those three over the likes of guys like Kyle Murphy and Brent Qualley, Um, you know But you're still talking about, for the most part, below average starters in this league, at least based off of how those guys have played uh, in recent years. Havenstein's probably the best of that group. And he's probably, you know, the the most favorable thing you can say about Rob Havenstein is he's like a a league average starting offensive tackle. Um, And so what is all this telling you? You know, similar to Vic Beasley, uh, something we've talked about quite a bit with Vic Beasley is a lot of tax production as a rookie, came against lesser talent, which is understandable. That's not a knock against them. You don't expect rookies to come in. Traditionally, rookies don't come in and and are these super polished players, so they're typically going to beat the guys that are on a comparable level as they are, and those typically are the below-average starters, the backup caliber players. When it comes to Tech, when it comes to, you know, I think this idea from a lot of folks that, you know, sort of want to crown him as this potential monster and this superstar, the next superstar in the league, I do think putting these sort of things in context does suggest that maybe he's not quite there that you would not necessarily infer if you were simply looking at the sack numbers and seeing the six sacks in the regular season, the eight sacks over the course of the 18 games, and you would infer things that, oh, he's on the same level as, say, another guy that's been in the league for five or six years that had eight sacks or something like that. And so, you know, what's going to be curious to me, at least, with Tack is going to be when he takes on the Tyron Smiths and the Trent Williams of the world, you know, guys that are potential future Hall of Famers, how does he perform it against those guys? Now, sitting here today, I, frankly speaking, I don't expect him to do much against those guys, but we'll see. I do think Tack's potential as a power rusher is a little bit more formidable than necessarily his speed against those caliber of players. Um, you know, I think... Uh, it's really going to be this season, it's really going to be the mid tier guys where Tack is going to have the potential, I think, to shine um, and really sort of prove where he is as a pass rusher. Not necessarily the lower tier guys, uh, like I mentioned earlier, but the, the Ronnie Stanleys, the DJ Humphreys, the Ali Villanuevas of the world, w- who are guys that generally are considered competent left tackles in this league, but aren't world beaters, and Tack can potentially work over those guys as well as dominate the Sean Coleman's of the world. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily expecting, like, a Chaz Green level of dominance, but if he can sort of teeter closer to that, uh, where he's sort of constantly harassing, you know, uh, Eli Manning and, and, you know, Baker Mayfield or whoever's the Browns quarterback, Tyrod Taylor, in those games, then that's going to be very, you know, valuable thing to evaluate and, and really process this year. And so the big question with Tack this season is going to be, is he going to do that? Look, sitting here in July, I have no idea, guys. But I will say that I am not as gung-ho about that potential as maybe others are that I think are just simply looking at the sack production and assuming things about where his development will go. I expect Tack to be better this year. I think he will make improvements this year. But I do think it's going to be interesting to see monitor those improvements. I think... A lot of it may be that people look at, oh, Vic Beasley had this relatively quiet rookie season and then made this massive jump in year two, which we'll talk about later, whether that's actually accurate statement, description of what happened with Vic Beasley. Um, And so people are assuming, oh, well, Tack had a good rookie year and he's going to make a similar mass jump in year two and so it's all going to be amazing and wonderful and again i think that comes simply by looking at a number looking at a box score rather than watching the film and whatnot and football really does boil down to matchups and the problem i have is i don't think enough people are really looking at the matchups they're just looking at a number and saying oh this means this um but i think when we when we talk about tack i think it goes back to uh, the four keys that we talked about last summer when he came in, and the, these are the four areas where we're going to really evaluate him. The first uh, two are, are his speed, are his power. The third is the run defense. The fourth is whether or not he develops a repertoire, an array of moves beyond the speed and the power. So let's break those four things down in reverse order for a second. You know, um, As a second-year player, I'm not personally expecting that repertoire, that array of moves, to be as well-developed. Uh, to make drastic improvements last this year. You, you didn't really see much other than the speed and power last year. Um, he basically, I'm going to attack your outside shoulder or I'm going to go through you. That's really all he did last year for the most part. I think he certainly, obviously, there is room for improvement there. Um, but history and observation has taught me over the years that generally it takes the better part of like three or four years for the vast majority of pass rushers to really develop that, you know, the hand usage and the polish that you need to have that repertoire to be able to throw out those moves. Could Tack be an exception to that rule? Absolutely. But at this point, I wouldn't necessarily bet on it. Now let's talk about his run defense. And we saw him get limited reps last year against the run because he was primarily playing exclu- or primarily, he was exclusively playing in a nickel last year. I still expect him to primarily play in a nickel this year. But I do think um, probably due to the vast majority of those reps that he played platooning with Vic Beasley and Claiborne. He should have more opportunities against the run this year just because he's going to be in su- assuming a bigger role in that nickel defense in 2018. I think Tack has loads of potential as a run defender. I have very little concern about his potential and his ability against the run. He showed it last year in the limited opportunities, was very productive at times against the run. Um, I would like to see him in the future at some point get regular reps in the base defense. I think as long as Brooks Reed is here, that isn't necessarily an immediate need right now. And so, you know, I'm not worried about Tack McKinley's run defense. So I'm willing to go, go, go ahead and check that box. But again, that necessarily doesn't really apply to what he's going to be as a pass rusher this year, which brings us back to the speed and power thing. And as I said, I don't know if the speed is going to be a huge asset against certain quality offensive tackles. I think we talked about this quite a bit when we drafted Tack, and he doesn't necessarily bend well. And I, I don't think you see that bend particularly well, even despite the production, you know, attacking that edge and bending that edge last year. Um, if you don't see it on the film, because the vast majority of time when he is effective at turning that corner is against these lesser offensive tackles that aren't quite as good as preventing him from getting the edge Um, And can't really handle his speed. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm not as optimistic that he'll be able to use that as effectively and as reliably against the better offensive tackles he's set to face this year. Um, I do think the good thing about tack speed is that first step quickness is certainly good enough to get offensive tackles off balance. And thus that can allow him to build an array of moves, whether that's the repertoire we talked about, whether that's counter moves and and whatnot in the future. I just am not necessarily convinced that that we're going to see that this year, particularly in in September and October and whatnot. That may be a 2019 thing. That may be a 2020 thing. Um, And I think, you know, I think his power is going to be a little bit more of a, of a go-to pitch for him potentially, Um, regardless of the quality of the competition, because I think it's going to be more effective, at least in terms of generating pressure. And I think due to his length and his strength and his burst off the line, that can make him very effective at collapsing pockets and sort of flushing quarterbacks, maybe potentially two guys like Vic Beasley and Grady Jarrett, who typically line up on the other side of the defensive line. Um, I think, you know, the knock on that, and one of the reasons why I was not as, you know, icky baluki or what do you want to say, Uh, about tax potential as this prolific pass rusher in the league when we drafted him is because typically you don't see guys that if their go-to pass rush move is power they necessarily are these prolific pass rush sack artists basically like you see guys like von miller and justin houston who have outstanding power they will jack you up no doubt about it but those guys first and foremost are threatening the edge and, and that ability to corner and bend that edge and then when you're so focused on that, all of a sudden they throw that power and they just basically go through you and, and it's a wrap on you. And that's what makes them, you know, two of the elite pass rushers in the league and we other top end pass rushers have that. And one of the questions with Tack was without that sort of elite ability to bend, is his power going to be as effective um, as it would be if he if he had both of those things rather than checking one of those boxes. And so that was one of the questions I had about tax long term potential. But I do think you know that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be a bad pass rusher. I just wouldn't necessarily think he's going to be in the running with the the Khalil Max and, and the Justin Houston's of the world as far as you know being you know the league's best pass rusher as those guys have been considered at various points over the last couple of years. Uh, if I was betting on on what Tack is going to do this year, I'm not. Well, wouldn't necessarily bet on him having a double-digit sack season. It's certainly possible. I would bet that he's probably going to finish somewhere in the six to eight sack range, uh, which I think is pretty good. Uh, if he does that, um, I think one of the things I'll be paying closer attention to than necessarily his sack production, than at least most other people will be, is going to be what is his pressure going to be like. You know, he had 39 and 18 games last year. I would like that number to jump to 50, if not 60 or more this year. And I think that would be very indicative of his long-term developmental potential as well as his uh, immediate growth uh, rather than necessarily just focusing solely on the sack numbers. I think, it, you know, it goes back quite a bit a lot to Vic Beasley's production in 2016 where there were games where he would get sacks or he'd get one or two sacks in those games, but he would get very little pressures. And those were some of those sort of red flags that we'll talk about a little bit later, um, that were indicative that maybe Vic Beasley was ready for a little bit more of a regression than necessarily people were prepared for going into 2017, because as Pro Football Focus has um, readily stated, and I 100% agree with, pressures are much more predictive of future production as a pass rusher than sacks are. You know, you can get cleanup sacks and you can get coverage sacks and whatnot, and those are just sort of one-time, not necessarily flukes, but relatively speaking, fluky, while if you consistently get pressure, eventually it's probably going to turn into sacks, and that's going to be the one thing that we really need to watch with both of these guys. Now, let's wrap things up by talking about Vic Beasley, but before we do that, I do want to plug the various NBA shows on the Lockdown Podcast Network, where you can find All the content related to NBA offseason, as well as getting you geared up for this um, epic Golden State Warriors run 2019 (laughs) regular season in a couple of months. You can find that on the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day.
1: Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
0: So let's talk about Vic Beasley, you know, and, and- – Before we get to the Vic Beasley's breakdown, let's talk about the various things I've talked about over the last couple of months, which is sort of the false narratives that have surrounded Vic Beasley and his production in 2017. These are very flat out wrong narratives, um, but they're very popular because they're simple and I think they're lazy and they're based off of, again, looking at a number, not necessarily looking at the actual evidence in the film, in the data, what it's really telling you. Um... And I think, you know, the the biggest one is that Vic Beasley was mentioned in this Ringer article I referred to earlier that the reason why the main reason why Vic Beasley's production fell off in 2017 uh, from a sack standpoint was because he was stuck. They they called him weak side linebacker. He was playing strong side linebacker. But, you know, that that, you know, that's even further evidence of what I'm talking about. Um, You know, I think that's a total crop. You know, that's based off of a lie that has been perpetuated um, that somehow like him playing linebacker was limiting his opportunities to rush the quarterback. It wasn't, he was playing linebacker in the base defense. In fact, when you look at those seven games where he played linebacker in the middle of the season, as many of the times he was rushing the quarterback, he rushed the quarterback more in those games than the other nine games he played on average, uh, the rest of the season. Um, you also hear about injuries slowing him down. And while I do think there is a small kernel of truth to that, that him having a sore hamstring for a portion of the year certainly wouldn't allow him to have sort of his peak explosiveness. I don't think that really explains the dramatic drop-off in production as easily as some people might lead you guys to believe. And even if it does, I think it really does sort of show what I've been saying for quite some time about Vic Beasley is that he's kind of a one-note speed rusher and that basically if he does not win the engagement in the first half-second to full-second after the ball is snapped, um, he's not going to win that engagement at all. And and that's kind of been the problem with Vic Beasley, which is that he has this fastball uh, in terms of his speed rush um, that has the potential to be deadly, but it's really the only pitch that he has. And we saw this last year against Rob Havenstein in that playoff game that once an offensive tackle was able to time that pitch, uh, it's really a wrap for Vic Beasley. And again, you, you could you could arguably blame the subpar field conditions in that Rams game as one of the things, in addition to that hamstring, that was slowing Vic Beasley from being able to put you know his best foot forward, literally. Um, but I think that's not quite the excuse that people make it out to be, because again, I think it's really illustrating the quote unquote problem with Vic is that if everything doesn't go according to plan in that initial engagement if the field is sloppy if he's got a you know so is he only going to be effective in the georgia dome when he has perfect pristine field conditions um all of a sudden if everything's not going according to plan he has a little tweak here in his knee or hand or his ankle then all of a sudden he kind of just becomes just the guy at least as far as a pass rusher goes and so i don't think that's quite the excuse that some people like to use it as when they say oh he was hurt and that's why he was struggling it's like that's not a good thing guys um, but we'll touch upon that a little bit more. But before we do that, I before you know, I am very critical of Vic Beasley because I think he deserves to have criticism in the sense not of negativity, but criticism of actually evaluating the player. This is something I've talked about quite a bit this offseason. That it's not hating on a guy; it's trying to say this is the things that he does good, this is the things that he does bad, rather than what you often see in these types of forums and, and, and entities, which is it's either all good and any sort of indication that the player isn't perfect is hating or it's all bad any indicator that the player is actually a competent and contributed to the team. is just, you're just a crazy person and blind Homer or whatever the case may be. And it's never that case. And you see Vic Beasley and probably books read and buy embody, embody sort of the, the polar ends of that sort of distinction. So I'm critical of Beasley, but it's not because I think he's a bad player. I think he's a good player. I just think the version of Beasley that is the best possible version of him is a very different player than what other players believe that guy to be. And, you know, that sounds mysterious now, and I'll explain further as we get along. But let's talk about Vic Beasley's sack production last year, and let's talk about his seven quarterback encounters, six sacks, uh, as well as a quarterback hit against Tampa Bay that didn't go on the official stat sheet. But... Happened. Um, now, you, the knock on Vic Beasley's production is that the vast majority of that those seven encounters were cleanup sacks, meaning that he was chasing down a quarterback that either stepped up in the pocket to avoid pressure from other guys, or a quarterback that had basically escaped the pocket and became a runner. And you know, while cleanup sacks still count, they're worth pointing out because they again aren't necessarily overly predictive of future production. Although you can make a, a case that because Vic Beasley has been prolific with cleanup sacks over the last two years that maybe he's the exception to that statement but um, they sort of require specific conditions in order to further occur. Um, his only non-cleanup sacks of last year were two. Uh, it came against Tampa Bay on that stunt against Caleb Beninock and then again in week 17 against Carolina where he just blew past Darryl Williams with his speed. Um, all of his cleanup sacks were week one against Chicago where Glennon stepped up uh, week two against Green Bay where the right tackle missed a cut block on him. And so essentially he was unblocked on that play. And, and Aaron Rodgers was evading interior pressure in his face and then ran right into Vic Beasley, which then resulted in that turnover. You saw it against New England where Brady stepped up in the pocket. You saw it in the first Carolina game where Cam escaped the pocket and Vic chased him down from behind. And then you saw it against the Rams in the playoffs where he touched down Jared Goff after he tried to escape the pocket as well. Um, now, um, part of the reason why I'm so high on Vic Beasley and his potential as a linebacker is sort of related to that propensity for him to get cleanup sacks. What it's sort of telling me is that he's better as a chase player in a lot of ways, given his athleticism, given his 4-4 speed, given his hustle, given that when he's more of a see-ball, get-ball player, which fits more with sort of what the intrinsic core of what a linebacker is than necessarily a defensive end who has to be this sort of really refined athletic, you know, which Vic Beasley is, but this refined technician when it comes to you have to beat this 320-pound offensive tackle. It's not just let me just run around and and try to get to the football, which is more of a linebacker trait than it is a defensive end trait. And again, I'll touch upon that later in terms of how that applies to Vic Beasley's long-term future. I mean, it seems like this episode I'm just punting to future topics, but this is, you know, this is how it's gonna be. But I do think he's a little bit miscast as a sort of pure hand in the dirt pass rusher in the NFL rather than he's more akin to what Sort of your classic 3 4 outside linebacker is, which is a guy that can drop in the coverage, play the run, and rush the quarterback. And that's one of the reasons why I was very excited about his move at linebacker because it was like finally we get to see him fulfill what I think is really his long term potential in the NFL. Unfortunately, that's not going to necessarily be the case in 2018. Um, but let's go back a little bit and talk about his sack production in 2016, which I think further puts his 2017 season into better context. The cleanup sacks, as I said, were a regular occurrence in 2016. And, you know, similar to what Tack did this last year, Vic feasted particularly on bad offensive tackles in 2016 that really could not handle his speed. Um, In his last 32 games, you go back all the way to that week five game. His, you know, 32 games ago was that week five game against Ty Sambrello uh, when you factor in uh, the playoffs as well. In his last 32 games, Vic Beasley has 20 and a half sacks. And that's a really good number because then you can sort of interpret that when you, again, when you look solely at the the number on the paper, you look at that and you say, oh, well, that means that Vic Beasley is a double-digit sack guy over the course of a 16-game schedule. But again, that's only looking at the numbers. I think, and when you really break down those 20 and a half sacks, nine of those sacks have been cleanup sacks. Another two have come him primarily winning on stunts. So that's 11 of his 20 and a half sacks, almost 55% of Vic Beasley's sack production in the last 32 games has come either primarily through hustle or the design of the scheme, where essentially he you could have put anybody in that situation and he probably would have gotten a sack. And again, they still count, but I do think it reflects that a ton of Vic Beasley's production isn't because of sort of unique skills and traits that he possesses, as a player besides maybe the fact that he runs a four four and it's really hard that unless your name is Michael Vick or Lamar Jackson, any quarterback's not going to be able to run away from him. Um, And I think that's sort of indicative of what sort of Vic Beasley. It also gets interesting is that when you look at those 20 and a half sacks over the last 32 games, only four, four of them came against guys that sitting here today in July are currently slated to be starting offensive tackles in the NFL in 2018. Two against Rob Havenstein in 2016, one against Mitchell Schwartz, one against Daryl Williams, and one against Joe Barksdale. The rest have come up against backup offensive tackles or guards. Five. Out of his 20 and a half sacks. That's fascinating, isn't it? And as I said, over the last six months, all you have to do is uh, to understand what's happening with Vic Beasley is watch those 2016 Rams game. And then watch the 2017 Rams game when he's going up against Rob Havenstein. And I think it tells you everything you need to know about Vic Beasley. I don't like to be overly reductive when it comes to these things. But in this instance, this is the perfect example uh, of where being reductive, I think, is very informative, at least in this case, when we talk about sort of talking about Vic Beasley. In that first outing, Havenstein had no ability to handle Vic Beasley's speed. and He whooped him for two sacks, as well as multiple other pressures. In that second one, Uh, um, Havenstein could handle his speed because in the previous 12, you know, offensive lineman study film too. And he figured out, okay, all Vic has is a fastball. And if I can hit that fastball, he can't beat me otherwise. And that proved to be true in that game. Um, And I think, you know, the knock against Beasley, not just in 2017, but this was also prevalent in 2016 and 2015 um, has been that his production stems basically from three things. It's his fastball slash speed rush. It's his hustle, which leads to those cleanup sacks. And then it's stunts. And, um, you know, I think my criticism of Vic comes from those three things. He really hasn't developed all that much in three years now in Atlanta as far as a pass rusher goes, because those are the same things he was relying upon in 2015. Those are the things that he's been relying upon in 2017. Now, I don't think that makes him a bad player, but I think there has been this push by many other people, particularly after that 2016 season, to crown him as one of the elite pass rushers, one of the best pass rushers in the league, based entirely, again, off of his sack production, which, again, I don't think is telling the true story about him. And I've sort of been pushing back against that, and I think in 2016 that caused me to you know, be called a, a hater of him. But now I feel like in 2018 I'm like one of the big, biggest champions and supporters because I think the reason... For that is because unlike most other people I have sort of shed the burdens of expectations when it comes to Vic Beasley and so I think I see him in a different way than other people do. I think Vic is a really good player that has been somewhat miscast in Atlanta as his pass rushing defensive end that he isn't all that good at. Like I think if you put him on a 10 his pass rushing skill on a 10 point scale, he's probably like a 6. Now, I think other people sort of want him or see him as his 8, 9 or 10. And I don't quite agree, and I think a lot of that is due to expectations. I think expectations has been everything when it comes to Vic I think we drafted him in 2015 after that eight-year drought since Jamal Anderson of taking high-level pass rushers, and the expectations were, you know, he was being compared to Von Miller. People were saying, oh, he's going to be the next John Abraham in Atlanta, and when he didn't live up to that as a rookie, there was a backlash. And then he put up this monster production in 2016, and I think partially that got overhyped by folks, by the fan base, because it was essentially the backlash of the backlash. There's nothing fans love to do more than dunk on other fans, and whether that's a fan of another team or fans of your own team, you're going to dunk on those guys. And so all those Falcon fans that were mad at the people, the other Falcon fans that were calling Big Beasy this bust, or, you know, talking about best player available because they didn't take Todd Gurley or whatever, just wanted to dunk on those fans. And so it was like, huh? See, I told you, Vic Beasley's amazing. He's wonderful. And they started pushing, you know, the pendulum, pushing the rhetoric to more of an extreme take, which wasn't really based off of reality because it's like, oh, he led the NFL in sacks. That means he's amazing. and And it doesn't necessarily reveal that when you actually look at the film. And then he has this 2017 season, and then it creates this narrative again that he was sort of miscast as a linebacker. I don't think he was miscast at all. Yes, he was very raw at times, and it showed on the field as a linebacker, but that comes from the fact that, you know, he hasn't really played any linebacker all that much outside of a couple of series in the preseason uh, over the last couple of years. And I think he has a very natural skill set to be a linebacker, as I mentioned, with his ability to chase guys down. but. He's very athletic, he sets the run particularly consistently against the edge better than you know a certain other linebacker on this team that may or may not be you know his name might remind, right, might rhyme with Ravondre dable um you know I think he's underrated in coverage you know he has the athleticism and smoothness to be an effective man cover guy has flashed at on rare occasions that he's got the opportunity to cover tight ends and whatnot um you know he Didn't look necessarily comfortable dropping in the zone because that's not something he's done all that much. He hasn't really done that. He didn't do that in Clemson. He didn't really do that early in his NFL career. And so, you know, yeah, sometimes he's five yards out of position on his zone drops and that just comes with more reps. He would get better at that. But, you know, I think part of the reason why people hate hated Vic Beasley in coverage is because these expectations that he is this prolific pass rusher that's completely miscast in that role. And I think it, it comes from this belief that he's this elite pass rusher and if, and if he's this elite pass rusher, he can't rush the quarterback, do the thing that he's best at um, if he's dropping into coverage. And it's understandable. It's certainly – you can certainly make the case that Vic Beasley is a better pass rusher than he is in coverage. But a lot of that stems from the fact that he's probably – rushed the quarterback thousands of times over the last couple of years and dropped in the coverage like 50 times. Of course you would be better. It's not rocket science that you're better at something you've done a thousand times versus something you've done 50. You know, he's raw, but it's not that he's unskilled. And I think because of those expectations that Vic is going to be this dominant pass rusher that has been miscast, you get these false narratives about him. And I think, um, you know, what people need to do is they need to, Really look at Vic Beasley and just throw away the expectations that you know that he's the next Von Miller, that he's the next John Abraham, and start being a little bit more willing to accept the possibility, as I have, that maybe he's just the next Bruce Irvin or the next Anthony Barr or the next Connor Barwin or the next Jamie Collins type of guy. And in the case of guys like Barr and Collins, in particular, both of whom were edge rushers in college that then turned into, you know, over the last couple of years at various times have been considered among the better and best linebackers in the league that's not a bad thing like that's still a very good player jamie collins one highest paid linebackers in the league we'll see if minnesota pays anthony but he's going to be probably whoever pays him whether it's minnesota or somebody else is probably going to be one of the highest paid linebackers in the league they didn't get that money because they stink and so i think that's part of the problem but again Because people are so locked in, Vic Beasley has to be John Abraham, that if he's not John Abraham, he's a top 10 pick, he's got to be this guy that he's bad. And it's just sort of this black or white, this binary viewpoint. He's either a double-digit sack guy or he stinks. And I think that's where I've sort of divorced myself. I've freed my mind in so many ways from that sort of limited viewpoint. Because again, as I've said so many times on this podcast over the years, expectations are going to be the death of you. It skews your perceptions, it narrows your focus, and you just become living in this fantasy world based off of your preconceived notions about a player or a thing that you can't escape from rather than actually living and breathing in this world of reality where your expectations are meaningless to what reality is. And I think that's really where people need to check themselves when it comes to Vic Beasley. You know, Now that the Falcons are going into 2018, they're basically committed to not playing Vic Beasley as a linebacker this year. And I think it's understandable that the Falcons made that choice. Obviously, as I mentioned at the top, the pass rush is going to be pivotal to the team's defensive success and their transformation this year. And so obviously you want to put your best foot forward. And there's no doubt about it whether you think Vic Beasley is the best pass rusher on the team or the third best pass rusher or the fourth best pass rusher on the team. Having him rush the quarterback as many times as possible is probably going to help the Falcons do that better than necessarily asking him to play linebacker, uh, given sort of the other personnel choices they've made over the last year or so. And so focusing, asking Vic Measy to focus on being the best pass rusher, being the best defensive end that he can be this year, I'm not upset by that in, in sort of a sense, it makes perfect sense from the team's Standpoint, But I do wonder if, you know, a year from now, 12 months from now, we're going to be looking back in retrospect wondering if, you know, 2016, 2017, and 2018 might have been better served getting Vic Beasley more reps at that linebacker spot in the event that he doesn't necessarily make that huge leap forward and and help transform this Falcons pass rush Um, and maybe be, in retrospect, might have been a better choice in terms of the long-term development of Vic Beasley and this defense. Who knows at this point? But, you know, let's talk about what Vic Beasley, you know, um, we're, we're getting up to an hour. Let's talk about what Vic Beasley needs to do in 2018. I still got more to say, guys, so I hope you're finding this interesting. But, I, I like I said, I have a lot to say about this subject. And probably hopefully this will be the last time we really have to address this in depth, um, you know, until we actual games are played. But um, I think one of the things that he needs to show... Um, is really not being that one-note pass rusher this year. Or really, in his case, as I mentioned before, a three-note pass rusher, which is a guy that lives off of his first step, his stunts, and his hustle. Um, you know, Again, even if he's not that guy, that's not a bad player. That still could be a solid, good player in the NFL. But it's obviously not going to be John Abraham. It's obviously not going to be Von Miller. It's probably not even going to be Cliff Averill, at least – the Cliff Averill that's played in Seattle rather than the Cliff Averill that I thought Cliff Averill was in Detroit. And one of the reasons why I compared Vic Beasley to Cliff Averill was because of that's what Cliff Averill was in Detroit, which was primarily this sort of first step quickness guy that won purely off of speed against lesser talents. Um, But I think it winds up boiling down to this 2018 season being a make or break season for Vic Beasley. I think if he doesn't really take that leak and become that guy that can legitimately and consistently threaten the better offensive tackles in the league, you have to start considering him less as your go-to pass rusher and more as your second or third fiddle. Um, and that obviously has financial ramifications down the road. Um, I think the good thing for Vic Beasley, at least in terms of his 2018 season and the matchups he's going to face is he's not facing a who's who of great elite right tackles. Um, you have Lane Johnson, you have Mogan Morgans, you have Lyle Collins, who struggled last year, but the assumption is he'll he'll make gains this year and year two at at right tackle. You got Marcus Gilbert, Brian Bulaga, Ryan Ranchap. but other than that, you're not facing a whole lot of upper echelon right tackles this year, and so he should have eight or nine games. Uh, it would seem against guys that you know if Vic is sort of this legitimate high-level pass rusher, he shouldn't really break a sweat against those guys. You know, you look at a guy like John Abraham or Von Miller in those eight or nine matchups that, you know, relatively easy matchups, those guys would have no problem racking up, you know, 12-plus sacks in those eight or nine games. And so I think, you know, one of the reasons why I'm personally looking at Vic and thinking that, you know, he kind of needs to have a double sack season in order to sort of finally put to bed whether or not how good a pass rusher he is. And so it's from my perspective, it's like, yeah, if he if he doesn't have 10 plus sacks this year, then it kind of is telling us that he's not that guy or, you know, maybe, maybe further down the line, he could be that guy. But again, because of certain, you know, free agent and financial issues, I don't know if the Falcons could necessarily afford to assume that he will, eventually develop into that guy if he doesn't show it this year particularly against the slate one of the interesting things we'll have to see is you know early in the season bulk of his quality competition does tend to come early in the season and we're going to see some early games in the first half of the season before the bye week like against the Bengals, like against the bucks against the giants where he should have some very advantageous matchups and those might be the games where he does sort of Come alive a little bit, and so that would be interesting to watch with Vic over that those first two months of the year. And my last point here that I'm about to wrap this thing up, and uh, you know I hope we'll see this this summer, and hopefully it translates into the regular season. This is not necessarily a Vic or Tac or it is a Vic and Tac notion, but I'm I'm done with my Vic rant now. But I I kind of want to see the Falcons do away with this left-side versus right-side defensive end with Vic and Tack this year. I feel like um, that was a holdover due to the fact that they had Adrian Claiborne and due to his, you know, Herb's palsy where he couldn't really use his right arm as effectively as his left arm. You couldn't really play him on the left side of the defensive line and, and him be as effective in that role. Um, I feel like now that Claiborne is gone, Like that's no longer holding the team back, and so there's really no excuse to sort of park Vic on one side of defense and attack on the other side of defense and only allow them to rush the quarterback. Vic has gotten rare opportunities to rush from the right side since his rookie season, but when he has done so, he's been very productive on a snap-to-snap basis, and I feel like, you know, particularly looking at a game like Carolina early in the season where I feel like Vic against Matt Khalil, that's a matchup that Vic will dominate. I feel like uh, Tack makes more sense to go up against Daryl Williams, uh, where Tack's power and length is a little bit more advantageous than Vick's being a little bit more undersized in that role. And so that's one of those things I'm hoping we see this summer. I'm hoping the Falcons do it. I'm not going to necessarily hold my breath that they will, but I do think it could lead to some positive benefits where you can sort of alternate those guys and not necessarily say, okay, you're only going to rush from the left side. You're only going to rush from the right side. I think Tack's ability sort of allows him to be just as effective on the left or the right because, again, the power, it doesn't matter what side. You know, you can argue that speed matters a little bit more on the right than it does on the left, but that is from a bygone era where, you know, the quality of your left tackle is significantly better than your right tackle, which is still the case in the NFL, but isn't quite to the same degree as it was, you know, in the early 2000s and the 90s and and past decades. Um, So I feel like kind of if it was me if i'm Dan Quinn i'm going to be like okay well, who do i think Vic will do the best against and that's the side of the defensive line Vic's going to primarily rush from um this year this week in the nickel and then we'll just put tackle on the other side and it'll be good and then you know we'll mix in Brooks Reed for 10 snaps or whatever he'll play on both sides five here five there and it'll be good to go and that would be my plan of attack, and I think that would be the best way of using those guys, and maybe that could lead to those guys maybe having a, a more prolific season than necessarily just strictly you got this side, you got this other side We'll see if the Falcons do that. get the best matchup but that's what I'm hoping to see, and um we'll see if they they wind up doing that, but that's all I have to say about the edge rushers uh, you know I promised on Twitter that this was going to be like the the greatest episode that you ever. Heard, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you guys were informed by this. Again, I do think this edge rush group is talented. I'm not as convinced that they're going to make this huge, massive leap. I have my healthy skepticism of Vic Beasley. I have a moderate amount of skepticism about whether Tack McKinley is going to make that ascendancy. I hope they do. I really do. I really want to be wrong about this, Glenn. I really want to be like, yes, Vic finally put it all together. He started using his hands. Tack, you know, that whole notion of not being able to bend well, we overrated that. He could still use his speed against good offensive tackles. The power in the the repertoire, Bryant Young, Dan Quinn, the guy that we got from Seattle that I'm forgetting, Travis Jones or whoever it was, um, all those guys came together and really got the most out of this group of guys. I hope we can say all that this year, and I can sort of be like, oh, that whole thing about, you know, Vic and Tack not being quite as good I said in July, just pay no attention to that. I hope that happens. I, I am a fan at heart, so that's what I want to see. I want to be rooting for these guys every single week. I want to go into that Bengals game just, oh, smothered in the warm, gooey blanket of just Andy Dalton's corpse just being ripped apart by Tack and Vic coming off those edges. That's what I want to happen. No offense, Andy Dalton. You know, I hope you have a happy life, but <laughs> I. I I want to see your body get ripped apart in that game, like a a wildebeest by a pack of lions. Um, you know, so, like, that's what I want to see happen. I hope we see that. I'm not necessarily sitting here today. I'm not holding my breath. But certainly, if we see some of these developments in the preseason, I can get a little bit more on board with some of the hype and the hope and all that sort of stuff. So, um, that's what I want to leave you guys with. I hope you enjoyed this episode outro Falcons fans on twitter locked on falcons on twitter locked on falcons on facebook email address locked on falcons at com. check out the websites locked on falcons.com as com, where the show is posted daily you can provide all your feedback on those websites on those platforms and hit me up we will be back with more uh positional breakdowns later this week as well as we got some afc north uh season previews coming up as well so look forward to that and uh you know I hope you enjoyed this hour-long pod, but start your, your second week of July off. And right you
1: are Locked On, Falcons. your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot to mention this because it's run so long, but I do wonder, we talked about this a little bit, I do also wonder if Tack's going to get some inside reps. Um, again, you can make the argument that the Falcons' four best pass rushers on this roster are Brooks Reed, Tack McKinley, Vic Beasley, and Grady Jarrett, and so there will be some opportunities for the Falcons to get all four of those guys on the field. And it, you know, given Tack's burst, his quickness, his power, um, you know, Brooks Reed is, is his main move is a spin move, so he needs space to operate. Obviously, Vic Beasley's more of a speed rusher, so he needs space to operate. So kicking those guys inside doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, so it makes more sense that you could Tack's skill does translate a little bit better inside. I don't necessarily know if it's something we'll see a ton of, but I do wonder if we could sort of see that sort of NASCAR package with the Falcons' pass rushers with Tack moving on the inside for a couple of snaps here and there. Um, you know, I would say at most you would probably see like five snaps a game. I think primarily you'll see Crawford or Sonata or whatever. But if if, if whoever is that other interior guy opposite Grady Jarrett, in the nickel early in the season, isn't quite living up to potential. I do wonder if the Falcons might throw out that NASCAR package a little bit more frequently as the season wears on. So that is something I I did also want to touch upon. Um, And if I I don't talk about it here, when will I be able to talk about it? So that's something to keep an eye on. So, you know, pay attention to that this summer as well.